1: Joining us now, i pleased to say, is Victoria Fernandez, Chief Market Strategist at Crossmark Global Investments. Victoria, is this a case of tell me why I should hike in March, or have we changed? Is it a case of tell me why I shouldn't hike in March?
2: I still think it's tell me why we should and I think that's what the Fed is betting on at this point in time. I know everyone is saying March is a live meeting. They're anticipating they're going to see that first rate hike in March. I'm not so sure Um, when we sit around our investment table at Crossmark, We're thinking it's going to be maybe a little bit later. We're still looking at June uh, for that first rate hike. And I think the Fed is hoping that we're going to see inflation hit the peak levels in the first quarter of the year. And then because of base effects and the, the difference that we see from a year ago numbers. Hopefully we'll have supply chain issues being a little bit better. So goods inflation comes back down. If the job openings continue to be um, steady and people keep coming back to the labor market, perhaps wages come back a little bit. And so inflation will start to decrease a little bit on that year over year number and give them some room to wait until June. So I think my betting is still on
3: June, but Uh, futures are showing. March is a live meeting. Victoria, how do your assumptions there that you're making about Federal Reserve policy then translates into the assumptions you are making about this bond market?
2: Yeah. So, you know, you look at where the bond market has been pricing things and you guys have been talking about it this morning. And I really think the long end of the curve has been underpriced for quite some time. You were talking about people's projections. We were looking to be back around that March high of around 175 on the U.S. 10 year by the end of this year. And I don't think with the week to go, we're going to hit that. Possibly we hit the 150 level and maybe go a little bit above there. But I think growth is going to be a little bit better than people anticipate in the first quarter because we're going to have strong earnings yes valuations may come down some but I think we'll have strong earnings I think we'll have good growth I think we'll start to see inflation pressures ease a little bit and that's going to allow the longer end of the curve to go and maybe steepen the curve a little bit this is such a flat curve for the Fed to start hiking I think they want to see that steepness a little bit and perhaps we get um, a small amount of that in the first quarter
4: what is holding the 10-year yield down, Victoria? I mean, who's buying this paper um, as we talk about the possibility of two or even three rate hikes next year?
2: You know, Matt, I had this exact conversation with a client on Thursday, and, you know, why is the bond market staying where it is? And and we can talk about there's uncertainty, there's flight to quality. I think a lot of it, though, is you look at sovereign debt around the world, we have such low levels still, and I think that that's pulling down some of what we're seeing in the U.S. I don't think it's all just U.S.-centric as to why rates are so low. Comparatively, around the world, we have people still coming in because, relatively, the, the yields are higher. But I think we have lower yields globally holding us down. You have some uncertainty still with the Omicron variant out there, even though we think the um, effects are less than what we've seen in previous variants. But I still think you have that uncertainty and questioning what the Fed is going to do that is holding yields back a little bit at this point.
1: Victoria, there is this belief that if you have higher interest rates, the start of a rate hiking cycle, the financial conditions have to tighten, the equity markets have to fall. I can think of several experiences in recent financial market history where quite the opposite has happened. I can think of the tightening experience going into 07, where equity markets continued rallying really aggressively, even as rate hikes started to come through quite quickly. Can you envision a similar scenario taking place this time around? I just see deeply negative real interest rates and think, how much work does the Fed need to do to actually tighten financial conditions?
2: Yeah, you know, historically, when we look at what goes on in a rate-hiking cycle, throughout the tapering and even through the first rate hike, you continue to see equity markets rally. and We don't really see the equity markets take a hit until maybe that second or that third rate hike. Again, if we're looking at June as a first rate hike, even if we say it's March, you're looking at the second half of this year before it starts to affect equity markets. And yes, we have these really low, real interest rates, and it's going to take us a while to get those up. So you have low rates for the equity market that will help valuations for a while, even though I think they start to come down a little bit from current um, levels of where they are on the valuation side. But I still think you have strong support for the equity market, at least in the first quarter, possibly the first half of next year. Then I think we start to have a little bit more concern and see sideways growth for the equity market instead of continually trending higher.
3: And and when we get a little bit more specific within equities, Victoria, where do you want to be putting your money and, and why do you like the banks here with the curve this flat.
2: Yeah. So Kaylee, when we look at the equity market, I mean, let's look at the S&P 500 at the end of last year, you had over 90 percent of the S&P above its 200 day moving average. That's come down now. We're really around 60, 65 percent of the S&P above that level. So I think you have to start really picking your names carefully. When we look at the, um, the outlook for next year, financials have been hit quite hard, but yet they're still in an uptrend. There's still some momentum there. So we think it's a great time to go in. Um, I think they have stronger balance sheets than they've had before. There's upside potential for dividends next year. They're cheap to the market. And as we mentioned, we do think rates are going to go a little bit higher on the longer end of the curve. So it looks like a good place and we want quality going into next year. So you look at Bank America, JP Morgan. These are the two names that we really focus on in that sector.
1: Victoria, thank the family for letting us borrow you for 10 minutes. We appreciate it. Victoria Fernandez there of Crossmark. Thank you very much. Joining us now, I'm pleased to say, Mohamed Yunus, the editor-in-chief of Gallup. Mohamed, great timing to catch up with you, sir, looking ahead to next year. The approval rating of leadership in this administration, Mohamed, is it as simple as saying it's going in one direction, it's heading lower?
5: It's kind of stuck right now um, and we don't know where it's going, the, this team started off with a really promising approval rating, especially on the pandemic. They were at six and ten Americans approving of how they were handling it um, in late January, early February. But on every metric now, um, the Biden team has really crunched down to the low 40s um, on foreign policy, on the pandemic, on the economy. Um, Our latest number is just overall approval of President Biden uh, and and how he does his job. And he's at 43 percent right now since the fall of Kabul, which is seems like a lifetime ago, but was Mm -hmm. in September. We haven't really seen that number move at all. Uh, Congress is doing even worse than the president right now, 23 percent approval of the job that Congress is doing. So, um, you know, this administration started with the America is back theme. When you look at the partisanship challenges, it really does feel like the same old America. Um, And this team is really up against some. Of very serious resistance in terms of trying to find common ground, because we don't see that in the data.
3: Well, and Mohammed, that paints a pretty bleak picture for the Democratic Party heading into the midterms. And when we talk about Build Back Better and that, you know, being something crucial for them, is that actually going to be enough to move the needle? Is it popular? Is the popular support there for it?
5: You know, it really depends on the spin around it. Um, It was really ironic when you were talking about what's going to be left of Build Back if it gets passed. I was starting to think of Obamacare and these massive uh, legislative acts that really are very different when they get passed than what was initially promised and envisioned um, to the public. But it's not just the Democrats. Uh, We see the Republicans also really struggling to get um, approval from anyone beyond their very basic. Um, ideological base. So Mitch McConnell, for example, the Senate Republican leader, he's at 34% approval, 63% disapproval. Nancy Pelosi, 40% approval, 58% disapproval. So it it really goes on both sides. Um, If you're not a Democrat, you don't have a great feeling about Democratic leadership. If you're not a Republican, it's about the same.
4: How big are those ideological bases, Mohammed, and um, how much has that changed? Are we looking at basically 30, 40 percent on either side that aren't going to change their opinion no matter what happens?
5: It's such a great question, uh, Matt, because that's what's really changed in America. It's not 30, 40. It's really about 20 percent on each side. Um, America now has the highest rate of people who identify as independents. So the general public, if you will, us us uh, non-politically minded people have really plugged out and tuned out of the infighting between the two parties. Um, You mentioned the midterm election. It is so critical that this is going to be the first midterm election since President Biden has taken office. Um, The world is watching Ukraine and unfortunately, American leadership is going to be watching the midterm election. Um, So a lot of the dynamics, while the rhetoric has really changed uh, since the Trump administration, a lot of those partisan divides really have gone nowhere. Unelected officials did much better in our poll in December than elected officials. So there are some bright points. um, But when it comes to Congress and the presidency, it's really a pretty ugly picture.
4: By the way, you mentioned unelected officials. I wonder about America's take on Anthony Fauci. Um, He he seems to be a very partisan figure. Do I have that wrong?
5: No. um, It's interesting because uh, Dr. Fauci actually is one of the leaders that did the best. Um, He got 52% approval, 47% disapproval. Uh, But when you look at it by party, um, only 19% of Republicans approve of, of the job he's doing. The surprise to me, and as a recovering attorney here, it was Justice Roberts. Okay. Justice Roberts actually got the highest approval of all the leaders we asked about. He got a 60% approval rating. And it's actually an improvement uh, in the past several polls that we've done uh, of his own approval rating. So it'll be really interesting to watch where that goes as these really critical decisions especially on abortion come up to the court but it is remarkable that in a year where the court is really trying to argue that it's apolitical um the leader of the court actually did better than most elected officials
1: mohammed what do you think's driving that for people who don't follow supreme court decisions or the process that closely what do you think's driving that
5: i th- un- unexpected decisions i would say um justice roberts has taken positions that uh, if you were simply guessing on who, the party that appointed the justice, um, he hasn't ta- he hasn't taken the partisan line on every decision. Um, but again, the Supreme Court is a, something that Americans don't pay a lot of attention to until there's a huge story, and there is going to be a massive story in 2022 with whether or not Roe v. Wade is upheld. So these numbers are likely to change dramatically, both for Justice Roberts and perceptions of the
1: court. Mohammed, looking forward to catching up with you through next year to help guide us through some of those issues. Mohammed Yunus, there, joining us from Gallup on.
3: another person working today, even though technically it's actually his week off. So this is his only job to do this morning is Jose Rasco, America's chief investment officer for HSBC, private banking and wealth management. Jose, thank you so much for making time for us on a holiday week. As we look through the last trading week of this year on to 2022, a primary question is where in the cycle are we?
6: Well, you know, Kayla, good morning to all of you, first of all, and uh, happy holidays to everybody. Uh, and, and clearly, we think, you know, the the early part of the cycle where we see the rapid growth is behind us. We saw that peak in growth uh, and economic growth and corporate profits uh, growth in the second quarter of last year. So we're more in a mid-cycle phase. But keep in mind, you know, especially in the U.S., as growth slows from, let's call it, you know, round up to 6 percent, if it slows to like 4 percent this year, that's still double the rate we historically have seen for the U.S. economy, more than double the rate, in fact. So I think it, it. 2022 is a year of normalization from our perspective in terms of fiscal policy, monetary policy, uh, growth and inflation.
3: Well, and as we think about those fiscal and monetary forces easing, that is, of course, what drove the accelerated early part of the cycle. Does that also mean that the cycle is going to come to an end much more quickly?
6: No we don't think so I think if you look at, at monetary policy and you just both debated that uh, monetary policy is tightening to a degree uh, you know if you think of you know tapering QE is really not putting your foot on the brakes it's really lifting your foot off the accelerator uh, and we think the Fed has decided to to let the the uh, car move forward at its own pace a little more but but long story short that tightening that is just beginning. Uh, even if the Fed were to tighten three times next year and two or three times in 2023, uh, the real Fed funds rate still remains quite, you know, quite low uh, and, and in fact negative. Right. Even if you get inflation slowing back toward a more normal rate of, you know, two to two and a half.
4: How responsive is this Fed going to be to market moves, Jose? I mean, um, is there going to be a Fed put still? Well, you you raise
6: an interesting point in the sense that there are quite a few vacancies, as you know. Uh, So that is going to be somewhat, you know, the concern in the market is how dovish will this Fed become? Uh, We're not anticipating that they'll be too dovish. We think they will try to move with the market, but we don't think this is going to be a Fed that is going to move in advance or try to tighten to keep the market happy. Uh, And but we think they'll be there to be supportive. So, yeah, that Fed whether you want to call it a Fed put, uh, yeah, it it remains somewhat in play, and we think they will be supportive next year of markets. Yeah, absolutely.
4: Uh, Jose, looking at the, the bigger picture, um, stepping out to the 35,000-foot view, if you will, a, a, and your job title as Chief Investment Officer for uh, Private Banking and Wealth Management, I was talking with Kaylee this morning about Nikolai Tangen, the head of the Norwegian um, Sovereign Wealth Fund. And he's concerned that returns are just going to be lower in the next decade because of inflation, because of central bank positioning. Um, he's got to trillion invested in this market, I think the biggest equity holder. Are you worried about lower returns going forward as well?
6: Well, it, it depends on your perspective, right? If you're saying, will equity markets be lower than they were in 2021? Probably, yeah. I mean, it's hard to. It's going to be a, a tough year to beat at 25, 26 percent, right? So, no question, equity returns will be down from there. But 2020 and 2021 were sort of abnormal years in terms of economic policy and and, and financial market returns. Now, going forward, if you look at next year, for example, you know the the market is calling for 18 percent growth in, in corporate profits. Um, That looks pretty healthy from our perspective. And keep in mind, the one thing that I think a lot of people are forgetting, while we are mid-cycle in a more of a mid-cycle or mature stage of the economy, there are four other factors, secular forces that are going to be driving economic growth upward from our perspective. Number one is inventory rebuild which you've talked about the depletion of inventories this morning already uh, and how that needs to be rebuilt on a global basis. Number two is the infrastructure story, where we're seeing a lot of spending on infrastructure globally. Number three is the tech revolution. Everybody seems to have forgotten that 5G is just the beginning of this technology revolution, which is going to be a multi-year rollout. And number four is the creation of, you know, economy 2.0, the sustainable world that we're all talking about uh, is finally happening, not just environmentally, environmentally, issues, but social issues as well. Those four major super trends promise to add to growth and productivity as we go forward. So um, it's easy to be negative, right? Uh, But I think if you look at those four secular trends, those four will factor in as well to the cyclical story.
3: All right. So looking at the world through that lens, Jose, where do you want to put your money specifically?
6: Well, our focus—if you look at fixed income, our focus is is looking at, at areas that provide some some better returns, and, and we're looking at high yield and in certain parts of the world as well as emerging markets. If you look at the equity markets, we're more focused on the U.S., uh, where we see you know stability of growth and earnings. Uh, and even though it's going to be a choppy year because of the political cycle, we think the U.S. will do very well this year uh, with expectations of 18% growth in earnings. That gives us a lot of upside potential for the equity markets. Um, and And then we look at Asia. I mean, you know, I know a lot of people have have focused on the, the story in China where, you know, short term there are issues. Longer term, you will not see faster growth. You will not see faster uh, consumer spending power explosion uh, that we will see in in Asia uh, over the next three to five years. And so, therefore, we are very focused on the Asian markets where we see a lot of growth and a lot of intra-regional trade uh, that is going to take place uh, where where that growth is going to continue to to build on itself within the region. So those are the two areas we're focused
4: on. You're a voting member of the Global Investment Committee at HSBC, and on the subcommittee mm-hmm. for FX and uh, and currencies. What do you think about the dollar? We've seen some strength recently. Does that hold into 2022?
6: Yeah, we think it does because if you look at relative growth rates, and, and most importantly, Matt is is the relative interest rate story, right? It's one of the reasons where we think that the uh, the story on the 10-year has been, uh, you know, sort of a, a bit exaggerated in the markets. We don't see the 10 year backing up any great degree because there's there's a couple of major factors there. Number one, inflation should slow next year. Number two is we're gonna have a lower deficit than we did the year before, which means you have less issuance and with good demand and less issuance, you should have the US Treasury markets should remain very well bid. And as a result, we see that upper constraint on long-term rates. Uh and and therefore we, we see some strength in the dollar. Yeah. Absolutely. Not tremendous strength, but but range bound where we see some concerns in the in the fixed in the uh, FX markets rather is in some in some markets in the emerging market space where you've got some inflationary stories that are far more um, long term than than they will be in the developed world. Um, And that is a concern And the and The FX markets will continue to serve as a as it were
1: Jose wonderful to catch up with you sir as always and I hope you and the family enjoyed the Christmas holiday Jose Rasco there of HSBC The most important policy decisions at the moment is to try and decide how short the isolation period should be after starting with this pandemic in and around 14 days shortening to 10 does it need to come down to five lauren sauer joins us now associate professor at the university of nebraska medical center lauren let's start there if we can just how much data do you still need to make a decision like that on whether it should come down from 10 days to something like five
4: yeah, I
7: think that one of the big pieces of data that we're continuing to wait for, um, and that people are actively collecting, is that that initial space between exposure and when you start to be symptomatic. And so, um, one of the challenges is that in the U.S., our um, sequencing was delayed. So. Uh, while we've made lots of gains in that space since this pandemic begun, we had sort of gotten complacent and we had stopped sequencing everything to understand um, when these new variants came out. So we're catching up on the data um, and comparing that those data to Delta to other strains. And I, I mean, I think that th- this is a big focus, especially considering our frontline workers need support. They need a deeper bench right now. So looking at Um, how long it takes for people to become infectious and how long they stay infectious for is absolutely a number one priority of our scientists right now.
3: Well, and Lauren, obviously that answer may be different depending on the subject in question, is vaccinated or unvaccinated? And I'm wondering too, as we talk about, you know, all of these symptoms appear to be more mild, at least that's what the data has suggested early on. How is that different depending on if a person actually has gotten their shots?
7: Yeah, we are seeing milder disease in people who have been vaccinated. Um, there's a lot of work being done to understand how vaccine efficacy is specific to Omicron. Um, is it waning? Do, are we going to need additional boosters? Um, and But what we are seeing is that there is more severe disease in people who are unvaccinated. And so um, the people who are in the hospital are primarily unvaccinated people. There are going to be some breakthrough cases that is an inevitable, but the people who are by far and large getting severely ill from this disease and this variant, um, even though this variant seems to be less um, severe overall, are people who are unvaccinated. And we are seeing a spike in pediatric cases. And and many of that many of those are because, um, you know, we're we're catching up with children being vaccinated because they were they had access to the vaccine later. Kids under five still don't have access to the vaccine as we work on the, you know, refining that study. Pfizer is doing a ton of work right now to refine um, that study, looking at improving and boosting Mm -hmm. the immunity of their findings.
3: Well, speaking of Pfizer, it's not just their COVID-19 vaccine that is at play now. They also have the therapy, Paxlovid, Merck's uh, COVID pill was approved last week as well. How much of that can make a difference, having those therapies available when we talk about hospitals, you know, potentially being overrun with patients?
7: Yeah. Any additional tool we have in our toolkit right now makes a difference. And these therapies are great because they don't have to be given in a hospital setting. Um, so this is where telemedicine comes into play. Um, you know, we're, we've even explored strategies of, of Providers who are quarantining, who can't actually be in the hospital, but are well enough to work to be able to run COVID clinics and things like that. So um, staffing, you know, the approach to staffing is very creative. And this gives us an additional space to provide COVID care for people who do not necessarily need to be hospitalized. And that's huge. And if and if we can get medicines like this to people early in their in their clinical course, we can keep them out of the hospital, which is better for everybody.
4: Hey Doc, the, uh, you know, I think the prevailing thought on Wall Street and in markets is that this is a pandemic that is becoming endemic. It's not that big of a deal anymore with the exception of you know the 10 day period that's causing canceled flights and holding up the economy. Is that the case or are we still seeing real problems with hospitals overcrowded, uh, with emergency help being called in? Are we still in the midst of a real disaster?
7: Yeah, I definitely think endemicity is the future, and the policies will have to adjust when that happens. But right now, what we're seeing is people who are being hospitalized, even with, with this milder, potentially milder variant. There's so many people getting sick, and so many people still unvaccinated that hospitalized hospitalized patients are coming in, or patients are coming into the hospital in droves, and the hospitals are overwhelmed. So, um, you know, I, I think we will get to a place where this looks more like flu or looks more like our seasonal respiratory viruses. But right now, this is still a pandemic. This is still causing severe disease. It's causing severe strain on hospitals and healthcare workers, Um, frontline workers outside of the hospital across the globe are being severely impacted. Um, and, you know, we're looking to get through the holidays, we're looking to get through um, these times where people are, are going out, they're going to parties, they're celebrating, and we understand that, but um, we're, we're definitely not out of this pandemic yet. And so for vaccinated people, we will start to approach, you know some semblance of normal life I hope this year but for unvaccinated people there's still real risk out there Um, and and this is still a very dangerous
1: virus Doctor, always fantastic to hear from you we wish you the best as we go into a new year Lawrence Sauer there at the University of Nebraska
0: This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast Thanks for listening Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.